In the apps, we have the depiction of today's gospel reading, Simon receiving the keys from Jesus. And if you notice, the other apostles, some of them are like, no, Lord, not him. Don't give him the keys. I mean, this is the guy who a couple weeks ago was sinking in the water. You said, oh, ye little of faith. I mean, he's always doing silly stuff. We know, too. We know five minutes later, Jesus is going to call him Satan. We know that, you know, several months later, he's going to deny that he even knows the Lord. Like, not him, Lord. But Jesus chose him. And as we follow through the the. The Gospels, we hear sometimes he's called Simon. Sometimes he's called Peter. Sometimes he's called Simon Peter. This is actually important because Simon is the man. Peter is the office. Simon is broken and frail with his fallen humanity. Peter is the rock on which Jesus works through. But Simon Peter is one and the same. Sometimes he's more Simony, sometimes he's more Petery, but it's him. And we see this all through the ages. We have some popes who are really awesome and some popes who are a lot less awesome. And yet the Lord chose from the very beginning to work through them. As Jesus says to him, you are Peter. This is just the Greek word for rock. This wasn't a name before Jesus made it into a name. Jesus says, Simon, your name now is rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. I think one of the reasons why he does this is so that we know without a doubt that it's God's work, not a man's work. It's Jesus who works through him. And as we look at these readings and understand what the meaning is of these keys, I think this helps us understand the rightful position of the papacy. So we jump back to that first reading from Isaiah. We have Shebna. Shebna is the guy. He's got the keys. The Lord says, I'm taking the keys. I'm taking your robe. I'm taking your authority. I'm giving it to this other guy, Hilkiah. All right, because you didn't do a good job. I'm giving it to him. So we see, first of all, this is an office, and it's an office that can be taken from one man and given to another man. We also see that the guy who's got the keys has a lot of authority, but more than that, he's got a lot of responsibility. He's not the boss. He's not number one. He's number two. He's not the king. He's the servant of the king. He doesn't get to call all the shots. He's the steward. He opens, the, he opens and closes the door, sure, but it's not much more than that. You know, even think of our own experience of having keys. The first time your parents gave you the car keys, it's not your car. There's a lot of rules that go along with having those keys. Even if, even if the keys are yours, even if you own your own car, I don't get to choose how I how I drive this, there's still rules that govern that. I don't get to choose what I put into the the engine, into the gas tank. There's rules that govern that. If I want this thing to work well, I need to be a servant of it. One who has the keys is the servant. He He doesn't get to make the rules. He gets to uphold them. I think another way we can understand keys 
in the way that Jesus says here, uh, it says, you will bind and loose. Or in the Old Testament, it says, what you open will be opened, what you close will be closed. We can, we can think of this in, in, a, in a real way in which the Pope, we have a, a good Pope sitting on the chair of Peter, the doors are open, right? Lots of people want to come into the church. When you have a bad Pope, the doors are closed. People don't want to come into the church. We see this at various times in church history when we've had great Popes that have had made great conversions and then we've had bad popes, like popes during the Middle Ages, popes around the, before the Reformation that kind of caused some of those splintering, that sort of thing. If you want a real good example of a really bad pope, go ahead and look up Alexander VI. I won't mention what he did during this homily for sake of scandalizing the young people. But at the same time, we should never be scandalized by what the pope does because the pope is always a little bit Simon- and a little bit Peter. We want, a, we want a pope that's more Peter than Simon, but at the end of the day, he's still Simon Peter. So how do we, how do we understand the pope? What is the pope's office? We know that the, the office of the pope is protected by infallibility, but what does that actually mean? Does it mean that everything that the pope says is true? Does it mean that, every, that the pope can never say anything that's false? No, that's not what it means. Actually, in the Middle Ages, they really wrestled with this question because, of course, this is, this is during the Reformation time. People are saying, we don't need a pope. King Henry VIII says, I'm going to be the head of the Church of England. We don't need the, the head of the Church of Rome. We're going to do our own thing. And there's also been other times in church history where we ignore what our own bishop says and like, I'm, I'm only going to do what the pope says. Forget about you. Well, both of these are errors on either side, but in that, in that 14th, 15th, 16th century, the, the great theologians of the time were wrestling with this question. Can a pope be a heretic? What? Well, I think most of us would say, well, no, obviously he can't. That's what infallibility protects. But does it? Does it protect the pope from saying anything erroneous? A cursory glance at church history will tell us the answer. No, it's not what it protects. In fact, the, the, de the declaration of Pope papal infallibility didn't happen until the 1800s in Vatican I. That's one, and so unless those bishops were all just completely ignorant to all of church history and, and made a really big mistake when they made that an infallible decree that the Pope has infallible protection, then we need, to, we need to properly understand this. Because sometimes we, we weight what the Pope says too heavily, actually. So those great theologians in the, in the 15th uh, and 16th centuries, they said, yeah, a Pope can err. He can say erroneous things insofar as he's acting as Simon. Insofar as he's acting as a man, his own, his own person, he can err. And so far as he's acting as Peter, from the chair of Peter, he can't err. He can't be wrong. Okay, well, that's good. That's helpful. So when is he acting as which? When he writes a papal encyclical, is that Peter or Simon? 
when he gives a news uh, press report, is that Peter or Simon? When he writes a book, is it Peter or Simon? When he gives a Wednesday audience, is it Peter or Simon? In fact, what they'll tell us is the only time that the Pope is infallible, and that protection applies, is when the Pope intends to decree something to be binding for all the faithful in the entire universal church pertaining to faith and morals, and he proclaims it as such. So that applies to roughly 0.00001% of everything any Pope has ever said, basically. And it's not even a guarantee that the Pope will say the right thing at the right time or in the right way or in the right place. It's just a guarantee that in those specifically very refined, narrow times, he won't say something's wrong, that that is wrong. Unlike sacred scripture where the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write what the Holy Spirit wanted Matthew to write, this only prevents a pope from saying in certain narrowly defined times what the Holy Spirit doesn't want him to say. So it can be confusing. I think part of the confusion is the place in history where we find ourselves right now. Now, like I said, sometimes it's very, what's the, pope, what's the Pope saying? Let's do that. And sometimes it's, let's ignore the Pope and set up our own thing. And right now, the anomaly that we've been in is John Paul II. So for 25 years, at the dawn of the media age, we see this Pope who, A, is really holy, We've canonized him a saint. B, he's really smart. He's got two doctorates, one in philosophy, one in theology. Then he takes the papacy to this whole new level. He starts traveling everywhere. I think he might still be the most, have the most frequent flyer miles of anybody ever on the face of the planet. And he's also, I think, still the most photographed person in the, in the history of the universe. And so when you have a really smart, really holy guy traveling all over the place on the front of People magazine and Life and Time and saying all these great holy things at Wednesday audiences and at homilies in Nicaragua and Zimbabwe. We say, wow, isn't the Pope great? Doesn't he say great things? Isn't he so awesome? And then we, had, we followed him up with Pope Benedict, who was also a, a, was a great holy holy man and a really smart guy. He had two doctorates also, both in theology and habilitations to go with them, which means like in Germany, that's like doctorate plus. And so we just got really used to looking to the Pope to say, yeah, what's the Pope say? What's the Pope say? What's the Pope say? But for most of the history of the church, that wasn't the case. And it's actually not supposed to be that way. I mean, think about it. In the, in, the, in the media age, we could just like, hey, we're, instead of me preaching, we're just, gonna, we're just gonna put up Pope Francis and we're gonna have a translation of the homily that he preached in Rome this morning. But we're not, we're not a mega church. That's, that's not the way it works. We, we don't look to the Pope for everything. In fact, one of the, one of the ways that we operate is the bishop is, is responsible for this territory. The pastor is responsible for this group of people. 
And the pastor is supposed to get to know his people so that he can preach into their lives. It's really hard for one man to preach into our lives way across the sea. And so, yes, the Pope can say great things. He can say smart things. He can say holy things. But he can also say erroneous things. He can also say things that are confusing. He can say things that are wrong. He can say things that are pointless. And it doesn't have to affect us that greatly. It's not that important. What he says ex cathedra, what he says infallibly, we want to be mindful of. Any, anything he says, I mean, we want to, we want to show deference. He is, he is the supreme pontiff. He is, he is the, he's the, he's the number two. Um, but but it's, not, it's not gospel truth, everything he says, and it's not always helpful for us to, to try to know what the Pope is saying. So, so I think, you know, a couple of things we can take away. One, we should always pray for the Pope, and we always do at every Mass. We always pray for the Pope. We pray for the bishop because those are hard, hard jobs. They need prayers. Two, I think we need to be a little bit less intentive of what is going on in Rome at every minute of the day. I mean, think about it. Go back to the, go back a thousand years, go back 500 years, go back a hundred years. You would have had a conversation like this. Hey, did you hear what the Pope said yesterday? No. How would I have any idea what the Pope said yesterday? Yeah, me neither. And that would have been fine and you would have gone on with your life just, just as well. In fact, sometimes... You might have found out about the next pope and say, hey, we got a new pope. And then by the time you found out that you had a new pope, he actually died and you had a new pope after that. It's like the pope throughout history has actually functioned more as the tiebreaker. All the bishops would get together for an ecumenical council and they'd debate and, and dialogue and argue. And then at one point, the pope would say this. And everybody would say, all right, we're done. Let's go home. He's kind of the tiebreaker guy, but not the sole arbitrator of everything. And I think we want to we settle back into that place. We should actually be more concerned with what our bishop is saying and leading and guiding us to than what the bishop of Rome, the pope, is doing, saying, and guiding us to. Not that that's unimportant, right? But it's, it's, it's first, I'm first listening to my, my bishop. Later in the Gospels, Jesus will actually give this same power minus the keys to the apostles, to all the apostles. You all have the power of binding and loosing in your own territory. And this is really, really crucial. But I think more, more than that, that, the most important thing for all of us to do is be much, more, be much more concerned with what's going on right here than what's going on in Rome. What's going on in my heart? Because at the end of the day, we all have that same struggle with being Simon, the person I was, I was born into, and Peter, the person that God is calling me to be. All of us have had a name change. We're all called Christian. Well, do I live more like Christ or do I live more like Kyle? In a certain sense, we all have that same ability, that same responsibility to open and close the door. When somebody looks at my life, 
when somebody looks at your life, do they see... Do they they see someone opening the door to Christ, opening the door to grace, opening the door to relationship? Or do the way that you and I live our lives close the doors to people? If that's what it looks like to be a Christian, then I don't want to be one. So my brothers and sisters, as we... Uh, we're starting, you know, the school year is starting and all sorts of programming here at the parish is starting. And one thing that I just want to leave you with and encourage you towards is do something to grow in your faith, to grow in your knowledge, to grow in your understanding of the faith so that you can be a good steward, so that you can open the door to others, so that you can be more Peter, less Simon. Always we're Simon Peter and always Jesus is there guiding us if we allow him to do so.